Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So today, my guest is Azim Azar. Uh, Azim is one of those guys that whenever you look for a bio of him, depending on, on where you're trying to find it, it's going to highlight different aspects of what he's done since there's so many of them. Uh, the one that I'm currently looking at says he's a serial entrepreneur and investor. Definitely true. Definitely uh, worked in journalism for a long time. He was one of the key people in developing The Guardian's website when they first opened that up. But it seems that he's probably best known for his newsletter called The Exponential View, which is read by 200,000 people from around the world uh, every week. And uh, he also has a, a podcast of the same name and style, which is also highly touted, highly followed. And so he's got so much going on, such an interesting individual, and he has a lot of experience at the intersection of journalism and technology and society and how all that has changed over the past few decades and how that's going to change over the coming decades. So he has a new book out as of when this uh, podcast drops. It is called, depending on where you live, The Exponential Age in the U.S. or Exponential in the U.K. and elsewhere. Uh, I read it. It looks it's 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 fantastic. There's so much in there that's interesting. And in this podcast, we get into basically, you know, some of the some highlighting some of the things that I found especially compelling in that book, as well as Azim's story, which is fascinating because it's this sort of global experience of different societies at different stages of development and the intersection of those different places with technology. Uh, so you'll hear a bunch about that from uh, from Zambia to, to the UK to early computing to all this sort of stuff. So it was fun to talk to him. And uh, if you want to connect with Azim, definitely go check out his book. You can also check out his newsletter, which you can find by Googling, you know, Exponential Newsletter or uh, Azim. And then if you want to connect with me, you can also go check out my newsletter. That's at codycalmers.substack.com. And uh, that is, uh, besides this podcast, the best place to follow my work and my writing. So... um, Without any further ado, here is Azim Azar. So the first thing I normally like to ask people is, where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in a number of different places. Uh, and uh, I was born in, in Zambia uh, back in the early 70s. But until I was 21 or 22, I don't think I spent more than seven and a half or eight years uh, in any one place. So the first eight years of my life were in in Zambia. The next uh, four years of my life were uh, in a town called Southend, which is in Essex. It's 100 um, kilometers uh, or 50, 60 miles east of London. Uh, And then as a teenager, while my parents stayed in Southend, I went to a boarding school in Kent. Uh, for five years. And then I went to university uh, in Oxford for four years. And from the age of about 12, 13, I really wasn't home that often. So I sort of, I don't feel uh, like, you know, I was deeply grounded in Southend. And that's why I say like, until I was 21, 22 and moved to London, um, I'd really had these very distinct uh, experiences in different places, which shaped me in different ways. What, uh, 
what was the reason for your family moving around? What did you what 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 were your parents up to that the yeah that there was there was all that motion? Well, that took them to Zambia, uh, which is you know this landlocked country in sub-Saharan Africa in uh, in 1972. Uh, you know, it's it's fascinating. My dad um, uh, and mom both grew up in uh, what is uh, now Pakistan. My mom was born in in the Indian side of British India. My dad on the Pakistani side of of British India, uh, and uh, my dad actually was really into um, uh, economic development from a sort of agrarian perspective and did his uh, graduate studies in Oxford um, at a place called St. Catherine's Society, which is now St. Catherine's College. Uh, and when he so he always had that interest um, in, in economic development from a kind of rural uh, perspective and, uh, you know, agricultural perspective. Um, and when he got married to my mother, they had they lived in the UK because he had essentially naturalized when he was a, a student uh, as a British citizen. Um, and they kind of got a little bit um, a little bit of wanderlust in the late 60s when they had two uh, kids, my, my elder sisters, uh, and a job came up with uh uh, an organization called the ODA. It's now part of the British Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. And that job was to uh, go to Zambia as an expat with this sort of institutional economic um, expertise and help the newly independent country start to establish some of the you know, economic institutions you need once you move, throw off the yoke of uh, the colonizer. Uh, and so my parents moved uh, down to Zambia when my mum would have been pregnant with with me, and then I was born in the Zambia Medical Association Hospital uh, in September 1972. And you know the nature of these postings is that they're actually short postings of three to four years, right? Then you get rotated out. So in fact, we rotated back to England uh, for only a few months uh, in. 1976, and then got another posting back in Zambia uh, and went went back there. Uh, so that was really why we were in in Zambia. And then my parents pretty much stayed put, but I moved around with my uh, with my education. Right, I moved to a, a you know to, to a, a boarding school for a few years, and then I went to university for a few years. So that was um, uh, you know why I was a bit peripatetic. That's really interesting. So I guess that kind of that gives a background of sort of sensitivity to societies, how they develop, um, and, you know, particularly with a, a case study of a developing nation, what does it look like as, you know, more things uh, continue to happen in a particular yeah. area? Uh, yeah, it's, it's yeah. really true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, then what, you mentioned this a little bit in your book, what are the first inklings of interest in, in technology and computers then? Yeah, well, um, those also emerged in in Zambia. So the nineteen seventies. Uh, in fact, I was born in um, in in nineteen seventy two, and it's the year after uh, a real milestone in technology, which is the release of the Intel four thousand and four processor, which is kind of a 
pretty critical chip in the development of the modern computing industry. I, of course, didn't know that for many decades. Uh, but the 70s were this moment of, uh, of computerization, and we started to think about space opera and science fiction. So Star Wars came out in 1977, and there was Star Trek as well, and there were all the clones uh, that emerged at the time, and they started to have robots and, 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 and so on. And these are the things that little boys are interested in. Um, and, you know, really bizarrely, in 1979, my next door neighbor shows up one day with a computer. Now, we kind of vaguely knew what computers were from, from television and science fiction. And my sister um, actually got mainframe computing time using punch cards uh, at uh, her high school, uh, which was in Lusaka, uh, which is pretty remarkable. Um, and I don't quite know how my neighbor got this computer. It was a, I, I'm guessing it was a kit computer, uh, possibly like an Altair 8800 based on the Z80 chip. And he showed up, showed up with it and it was, didn't do much, right? But it was pretty exciting for me. I, and at the time, um, you know, games consoles were emerging. So there was the Atari, the, which was a sort of flagship one. And then there was copy clones like the Binatone. And we managed to get our hands on a, a Binatone, uh, which allowed me to play kind of Pong and paddle tennis uh, starting in sort of 1979. And that um, moment to me is where we started to really, I had a kind of physical experience of what computers were. And I'm still baffled as to how <laughs> these computers in the days before the global supply chain managed to get to uh, to, to Zambia, you know, it was a it was tough to get there. It's landlocked. The main uh, freight line went through South Africa, which had um, you know this sort of apartheid regime at the time. Uh, but it still all got there, and I think that's where the bug started to take hold. Yeah. So you have this really nice, uh, I guess you could call it kind of a, a motivation or a comparison in your your preface to your book, which is to C.P. Snow's Two Cultures. A Cold War mm -hmm. book saying, okay, you've got the scientists and the literary intellectuals, and uh, we're, we're starting to see these big divides between them. And and one thing you sort of frame your book as is like, okay, well, today the two cultures, the one that, uh, as, as Snow put it, uh, has the future in their bones is the technologists. And then there's sort of mm -hmm. the other, you know, more socially, more societally oriented uh, intellectual cultures and that sort of stuff. And you, like Snow, are privy to what goes on both. So I guess what I'm trying to sort of triangulate here is like, when did you get those, you know, sort of two sides of the coin? How did that start to uh, develop for mm. you? Um, well, it's a really great question. And and I have introspected a lot on that question in the process of writing uh, writing the book and in the process of writing my, my newsletter as well, which, uh, you know, I started Exponential Viewer Newsletter back in uh, 2015. Um, and, and I think it really stems from that moment, that time in, in Zambia. Uh, and it stems from my parents. So my, my dad is this you know, economist, became an accountant. He's now in his late eighties. Uh, my mom, you know, also studied uh, economics, but she had uh, a copy of uh, Bertrand Russell's um, history of Western philosophy, uh, which I started to pick up at the age of seven and, continued to for a decade and didn't understand loads in it. Um, and, you know, strangely, I remember very clearly when I did philosophy at university that I knew nothing about Spinoza, I could never get my head around it. And then I realized that the pages 
relating to Spinoza had fallen out of her copy of the Bertrand Russell. Uh, and so I had never seen them as a teenager and I never kind of grokked it, grokked him. Um, and I know that you, you quite like uh, Bertrand Russell, you know, the good life is one inspired by love uh, and guided by knowledge. So, so I had these, this sort of backdrop where these things existed as ideas in, in the family from my parents, the idea of philosophy and the idea of, um, you know, economics and accounting and institutions and agrarian development. I don't want to pretend this is what we talked about, but it is the backdrop that one sort of hears and sees and picks up. And in the late 70s in Zambia, there were very, very few books. Um, so I had to make do with my sister's high school textbooks and kind of flicking through things. And even when we got to the UK, you know, it takes time to, to pick up books and there's no TV and there's no YouTube. So you end up, you know, building this interest. Um, and in parallel, uh, of course, we had discovered computers as a sort of society. And, and one of the first things that we did um, when we got to the UK was that my mum bought uh, a, a computer, the ZX81, which I still have. And we then had computers around. And I was, because of the ages of my sisters who were going off to university and so on, I was the one who had more access and more time and more inclination. Um, and by the time I think we got to 1984, we as a family had bought three computers. My parents had an Apple II at work and we had got a ZX81 and we had got a replacement computer. So I think that those two ideas pick up at very, very much um, an, an early age. And they, they, you know, they, they infused me and my thinking. Um, and, you know, I went to a school which encouraged people to use computers and had access to some. Uh, so that was always an interest of mine. I think where the pattern picture gets a bit confused for me personally, and I know this isn't the case now, but when I started, when I was leaving school, thinking about university at the end of the 80s, early 90s, um, my school, as many did, did not treat computer science as a real subject, right? Real subjects for things like chemistry and engineering and maths and PPE and classics and history. And, uh, and but, but I think that that um, is where I started to understand and also start to put together these, um, you know, these ideas because I was really interested in computers. I was really interested in the idea of, um, of mathematical uh, modeling as well. I mean, I didn't know what these terms when I, when I did it. And I remember spending time in my teens building really elementary uh, Malthusian models on a simple uh, computer where you'd have like, you'd model the rabbits and you'd model the amount of grass and you'd model the number of foxes and you would run iterations through these things and you could plot these sort of oscillating graphs of the populations uh, of each. And, um, you know, that for me, those Malthusian models, and I picked them very clearly, um, is, is like that intersection between my interest in these computational methods and my interest in kind of social dynamics and, and and what we would today call systems but back then I had no idea what I was doing yeah so you, you see what one thing I'm interested in in this sort of period of your life is that so you've gone on to do lots of cool stuff very little of which seems like it would have been predictable at, at any point you know like a decade before you did it um, so when you got to university and sort of around that time of your life what did you think you were going to do um, I got to university um, 
quite uh, quite confused uh, because I actually applied to um, to Oxford to study law, even though I was a pretty good scientist at my school and kind of I'd done all these extra projects and extra programs and so on. Um, and I showed up to do law. I probably chose law because um, it was difficult. Uh, <laughs> that, that seemed like a good decision. Um, and but I really didn't grok with it. I didn't couldn't figure it out. I mean. The law library in Oxford, as you, you probably walk past it on your way to your lab, is beautiful. Uh, but I, I mean, I, I found it tough. And so I changed to uh, to PPE, uh, which is politics, philosophy and economics. It's a kind of integrated degree. It's super interesting. It's why I did four years, not three. But while I was at university, um, I ended up setting up a student paper there, which is called Oxford Student. You've, you've probably seen it with three other people. And that was a student paper that was really driven by the technology because the guy who had the idea, it's called Stephen Pritchard, was really into desktop publishing. So using Macintoshes and Aldous PageMaker and Quark Express to lay out magazines. And that was a technology that was three or four years old. So we built this student paper um, using Apple Macs as a real differentiator in how you, um, you know, how you, you kind of produce uh, journalism or, or produce the output at least. And at that point, I think I started to spend about half of my time at university on an Apple Mac, um, less interested in the uh, in the journalism, more interested in the kind of the, the systems and the processes. And, you know, how do you represent color images in, in newsprint via Photoshop version two, which is what we were using. Um, and, and then through that started to I discovered the internet and fell down the hole of the internet in 91 or 92. And at the time at, at the university, and this will be baffling for people who are students listening to this, um, undergraduates didn't get internet access. I mean, some of the physicists did, some mathematicians did, no one else did. And we campaigned and we were um, really, really lucky uh, to be able to make internet in email access widely available across the university, so much so that my email address was my college handle and the number three. So I was like <laughs> the third person to get a college email address um, uh, or actually the second, because it only did odd numbers. Um, and so so that's where where Oxford was at the time and, and where my interests were. And to answer your question, you know, I left university having built um, an organization, which was a newspaper with dozens of people working on it. I was had become really good at using Macs to do layout and I understood the internet. Uh, in 94. And, um, you know, we were using, uh, we were publishing on the internet back then. Uh, and I had this kind of PPE degree. Um, I had no real idea what I wanted to do. And by the 54 job rejections or 53 job rejections I got from everyone from banks to consultancies, to newspapers, to magazines, to you name it, uh, nor did anyone else uh, know what the hell I was going to do. So yeah, that uh, there's one thing that I, I'm really curious here about the the, the sort of counterfactual. So uh, right. like you said, um, uh, Oxford didn't have a notion of computer science at the time, 
And so you were very interested in, in uh, publishing. You're very interested in computers and technology. And one way to, you know, sort of simplistically summarize your career is as, uh, you know, someone with a background in journalism who, who does deep forays into to technology and that sort of stuff. But if your parents had moved to Silicon Valley, if they'd moved to Palo Alto uh, in, instead of the UK, you know, you would have been a, uh, a technologist, a computer programmer who you know, forays into journalism. So I guess I'm wondering if you were starting out today where, um, you know, the balance has kind of shifted where it feels like it's harder to get a career in journalism and Mm -hmm. the the impetus is to get a career in uh, uh, technology with your understanding of the the, the part of the exponential age that we're in and the dynamics Mm -hmm. of the landscape and and that sort of stuff, as well as knowing what you do about, you know, all this stuff in your own interests. Would you do the sort of reverse today where you are, you know, a technologist who does uh, writing and journalism rather than, than vice versa? Yeah, it's a really, really uh, great question and one that I uh, contend with uh, right now because I have a uh, three kids, um, uh, a son who is 16, so is making his choices about what are called A-levels in the UK. So you have to narrow down in the UK rather early. Um, and so you kind of have to choose a science, humanities, mixed, maths, languages track quite early on. And then, you know, I've got two two girls who are a bit younger. And I think that you have to think a little bit about where the where the puck is going to be by the time they they get out. Um, But you also have to really think closely about their personalities and their their passions, Um, because you can't uh, you know, you can't force someone whose personality works in one way and whose passion is lies somewhere else to go off and become a biochemical engineer, however big the bioeconomy uh, is going to be. Uh, so it happens in the case of my my son, he is interested in those types of things. He is, you know, he he reads a lot, he can write as well, but he is he's much um He's much more drawn to those types of sciences. And the question then where I can sort of help him is to say, well, where should you, where should you end up landing given your interests, given the world, where the world is going? And it, I think in his case, it was clear that it was more science and engineering. Um, in his case, it was also clear that, um, you know, he, he doesn't really like the kind of medical side of things. Um, and then I started to say, well, look, the bioeconomy is going to be really important. Why don't you learn about it and see if you're interested in it? And so that's where he started to in a way, make his own decision, but he was not, like I was not, he was not forced into that. And frankly, if he had decided he wanted to do sort of physics and engineering pathways, um, he would have gone off and done that. But you can see it in his personality and you can see it by taking them, you know, as it were to the waterhole and see if they, they drink. So I think as, a, as a, a, a young person, hopefully the people around you who are your, your parents and your, your mentors are sensitive to your personality and your passions but they also need to keep an eye on where the world is going and as part of that also there's this importance of kind of cognitive flexibility because we can also be really really wrong i mean i have some certainties right and so one of my certainties is becoming a plastics engineer is probably a very very short career path um and 
And so, you know, don't, you know, kind of don't do that. Uh, but beyond that, I think you have to be a little bit um, open-minded. Uh, would, would I have, what I think I actually missed at university though, was not so much the computer science. I mean, Oxford had a computer science course. My school, my, school, my high school just didn't kind of encourage us to, to do it. Um, it. It is more that uh, we didn't have the entrepreneurial framework. We didn't have the language for it. Um, and so I was setting things up and writing business plans. And, you know, I, I took things to vent to investors back in June, 1994, straight after my final exams. Uh, what, what was missing for me there, which I think universities are much better at, is the idea that students might take the this high quality education they get and fashion it through the lens of a business to have their impact on the world. And I think that that is a major, major uh, shift in the way that universities now start to see themselves. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. I like your model of sensitivity to opportunities, but not, you know, course determined by by opportunities and and, and that sort of stuff but really but, but the, the reason sorry the reason for that cody by the way is um is advantage and privilege right so i i don't my kids don't need to be, get an unimpeachable uh qualification like a legal degree or a, a medical degree which will pay them an income regardless of technology transitions or societal failure right no one ever runs out of doctors um, and so, you know, I can imagine that there are many people, especially sort of real first generation immigrants, of which I'm, I'm not really, for whom those choices are, um, are, are much more driven by uh, downside risk uh, and economic uh, necessity. So I think we kind of need to position me and locate me in terms of socioeconomic advantage and say, you know, that's all good and well. Uh, Mister, but you know, <laughs> there's no downside, right, for you in this in this world right now. And I think that's true for for many many people when we have these these conversations. I mean, sometimes the rubber hits the road, and difficult decisions may need to be taken. And your passions and your purpose are not as important as yeah, food on the table or security. I love that you bring that up, and I and I do want to keep that as part of our conversation as we transition to talking about the content of of what you've written about uh, in your in your book because you know, an implication of the exponential age and that sort of stuff is, uh, uh, you know, inequality in various ways. And, uh, yes. you know, I'd certainly be interested to talk more about, about what you think that is of necessity of like, that's just how, uh, ex the, uh, you know, a, a kind of consequence of the uh, exponential uh, uh, gap and that, that sort of thing. But um, I do want to get to that content by way of asking you about your newsletter, which you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, Exponential View, which you started in 2015. It has, mm. uh, you know, neighborhood of 200,000 subscribers. Did you did you think it was going to get this big when you started it? What did what did you when you started it? You know, six years ago. Now, what what, what did you what what were what do you think that was was happening there? Like, yeah. Well, I, d I didn't know what I was doing um, I <laughs> at all. So I had just sold um, a, a startup and I had been working in the the acquirer. And, uh, you know, it's really difficult once you, you do, you're doing that handover for nine months or a year. Uh, and when you run a startup, you focus on one thing and one thing uh, only, uh, which is, you, you know, your responsibility to, to the company and the people working in it and to the investors. Uh, and so I came out and the world had moved on and I really needed to, to look more broadly. 
I love the newsletter format. I launched my first internet newsletters in 1996 for The Economist, and I've, I've returned to them a number of times. And uh, so I just was encouraged by a friend of mine called Laurent, who had done this himself to, to start to put a newsletter together. And I sent it to a few friends and it struck a chord. And it struck a chord, I think, because I was writing about uh, technology, not in a, you know, rah, rah, look at the Boston Dynamics robot do backflips kind of way, or rah, rah, look at this enormous venture funding and aren't these people amazing? Um, nor was I writing it in an entirely dystopian uh, Terminator style way. I mean, I, I, I got found my voice and of course, as many writers and analysts do, but I tried to balance those views and I've been an investor and I've raised venture capital and sold companies and failed and so on. And I've also been on the regulatory side and I've, you know, I, I'm, I've been an analyst as well. So I tried to bring those together and it struck a chord and I, I don't quite know why. I rely on other people to tell me. Um, and over time, just practicing 337 issues, uh, you, you know, you establish a, a, I hope at this point, approaching some kind of skill uh, in what you do. And you, I just had, I just had no, uh, no real um, idea uh, that it could, it could get here and, and in a sense start to dominate my thinking um, and be the thing that I am uh, in the way that, um, uh, in the way that that it has become, yeah. So since you since you are a long time uh, devotee of the the newsletter format and also familiar with traditional f um, journalism formats, but also pushing the technological boundaries of what um, traditional journalism is. For example, when you started the the Guardian website and and that sort of thing. Mm. My question is, what do you think of uh, the sort of Substack model of of, of newsletters that's sort of uh, emerging? today and, and what do you do you have, do you have any thought uh yeah i i do i mean i i um uh I, I you know i love i love the model i think it's really really uh smart um in fact as my newsletter was was taking off um because i have media uh friends in media i did go to a number of media companies before I'd come across Substack and started to say, this is a kind of model that would work for you. Um, uh, Kevin Kelly, uh, who founded Wired, had written about this in a great blog post called A Thousand True, a Thousand True Fans, A Thousand True Fans, where he essentially said that many creators like musicians and you know uh, writers can find a thousand real fans who'll pay them 50 bucks a year. And at $50,000 a year, you're earning more than the average and you can use that as a platform to, to do the, the next thing. This idea of perhaps micro uh, patronage uh, as well as, as a mechanism. So the Substack model, which allows anyone to spin up a newsletter and uh, you know taking away all of the technical pain and the billing pain um, in return for, I think it's 10 percent of your maybe it's 20 10 uh, percent i think of your of your top line revenue i think is a very very powerful one um th there are there are some issues that i um that that emerge from that i mean one is that um of course there's a power law uh just to sort of help people understand that right we mostly live in a world especially if you do only do high school maths where you think about the bell curve the gaussian distribution uh which is that um if you know effectively uh, uh, it follows that bell, bell curve and there's a, a lot of people in the middle and then there are these small extreme edges of very short people and very tall people. And, um, and you, you, we think of 
the world as exhibiting that that bell curve because we're taught it in reality out of many natural processes and many processes in in um, our economies follow what's known as a, a power law which it means that there's a very tall head where there's a head of superstars and everything else is kind of irrelevant um it's kind of like um there's there's google and who else there's amazon and who else and there and power laws exist throughout nature as it turns out we just didn't know to look at them and so the problem that you have on something like substack is actually you end up with a power law so you have people like me and people who are bigger than than me or, or when i was on substack um you know there are people making millions of dollars a year there but that isn't the, the the top quartile right that's the top one in 100,000 or one in a million and many people are eking a living and so on and or not even eking and that means that there are issues actually around the kind of voices that get heard and who has the capability to be heard again I I think part of the reason I have been um you know got this reasonable newsletter is not because the content is and the way I analyze it is so much better than everyone else. I mean, I think it's pretty good. Is it Lionel Messi good? I, I don't think so. I think what, what made a difference was my timing. I mean, I started this before um, Substack existed. It was the fact that I've been in the industry so long that I know people who are well-regarded and they shared it. I mean, I had Mark Andreessen who uh, created the first web browser back in 1994, you know, say, said something like, you know, I like this with a retweet um, and 2000 people signed up. Uh, and that happened reasonably consistently. So that was a structural advantage I, I, I brought in to climb that power law. On top of that, for, for, for a decade, I've studied power laws within networks and on the internet in particular, and I built a company on top of them. So I knew about the dynamics of power laws and I knew about the processes that underpin them. So entering this, I knew absolutely there was going to be a power law um, uh, to emerge. And this is not Glen Gary, Glen Ross, right? When first prize is the Cadillac, second prize is the, sec is, is the steak knives and third prize is you're fired. This is like first prize is an urn made out of gold filled with diamonds and second prizes you starve. I mean, that's what a power law is. So the, the problem in this very tough competitive market is yes, everyone gets a voice, but virtually no one will make enough uh, to feed the body that powers the vocal cords that makes the noise out of the voice. So in a way, this is uh, a microcosm, a kind of, you know, exemplar of, of, of what the exponential age looks like. So can you uh, bring that back to, you know, yeah. maybe just give us the the core of of what the the book is about and what you've what you've argued and and sort of your in your own words on that. Yes, can I can I interrupt our discussion with a small uh, commercial presentation and tell people what the book is called? Yes, please. Uh, okay, I will give a, I will give a, an intro at the beginning of the um, okay, thing fine. and which every, everything. And I also don't so know because I'm, I think there's a difference in I got sent the UK version, which is different than the US version. So I don't know what I should appropriately call your book. Um, so it yeah. makes most sense to most people. But yes, please. Um, yeah, I mean, any philosophers out there will have there's a good question of identity. What is the book called? Uh, so in in the US and Canada, uh, the book is called The Exponential Age. Uh, and in the uh, the rest of the world, the book is called uh, Exponential. And essentially, the two editions are um, very, very close, as you might uh, you might imagine spellings and a few other a couple things, more use in the uh, the UK version. There are a few more use. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And fewer Z's. Yeah. 
In fact, there are no Zs in the UK version. There are only Zs. Um, yeah. So, uh, so, so the argument in um, uh, in in the book is that uh, technology is advancing at an accelerating pace, uh, and that human institutions uh, only adapt at this slower incremental pace. Uh, and the result is this exponential gap that emerges between the new technologies and our ability to keep up. Uh, and I go into more depth about what I mean by the accelerating pace and, and why now is particularly different and distinctly so. And I go into more depth about the institutional adaptation question. Um, but the implications of this are that this exponential gap can explain some of the really critical issues of, of the time. Uh, it, it really underpins many of these seemingly un, um, unrelated changes across politics and business, from polarization to cyber threats, from the growth of platform monopolies to the turn against globalization. And then what I try to do is explain why in the exponential age, we need to identify new values, new design principles um, that allow us to have solutions to narrow the, the exponential gap. Uh, so it's it's a really cool book, and uh, there's a lot of stuff in there. I I want to this. There's one reason why I I really love the project that you you've done here. Okay. And uh, I, I want to kind of give a little bit of context to this. That mm -hmm. like reading uh, what you've written kind of made me think about uh, what I what I read recently from John Green's uh, The Anthropocene Reviewed, uh, and okay. kind of to me was a really humbling way to think about the joy of living in the the exponential age and what that means. And so he's talking about the sort of temporal scope of, of the human species and everything. Mm -hmm. If you'll allow me to quote, he writes, yeah. um, Earth is around 4.5 billion years old, a time scale I simply cannot get my head around. Instead, let's imagine Earth's history as a calendar year, with the formation of Earth beginning January 1 and today being December 31 at 11.59 p.m. The first life on Earth emerges around tw February 25th, Photosynthetic organisms first appear in late March. Multicellular life doesn't appear until August or September. First dinosaurs about 230 million years ago or December 13th on our calendar. Um, dot, 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 dot. Uh, Homo sapiens aren't part of the story until December 31st at 11.48 p.m. And mm -hmm. one of the things that you do, uh, you know, sort of touch on in your book is that, you know, one way to construe the exponential age is in the, the context of our human system and in a sense, our, our biological system, our societal system and that sort of stuff. And in a way, it kind of makes me feel like, you know, when you, you take it on that cosmic time scale, there was lots of little, 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 you know, like, you know, we go from uh, single cell to, to multi-cell. That was most of the time scale. And then, then there's this inflection point where you start to get this insane amount of increase in complexity. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, we get computers and we get uh, globalization and interconnectedness and, you know, more and more reliance on power laws in uh, the different industries and market verticals that, that we exist in. And that's the uh, like the 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 era of cosmic history in which we're existing in is, in a sense, this really, really significant and sharp inflection point in uh, this long timescale thing. And that's the thing that you are sort of bringing to bear on is what does this amazing era look like? And I think that's so cool, so humbling. And there's, uh, mm. you know, such, so there's, 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 there's a beauty to that, you know? There, there, re there really is. I should say, of course, you know, against the cosmic timescale, um, we, we're still, we're still, 
you know, not not much, right? And we have the, uh, you know, the battle of our lives just on a planetary uh, timescale right now. And we're going, you know, we're going to learn a lot about what it what it takes to uh, contend with that. Uh, I think one of the things about exponential curves, and if there are any, you know, mathematicians um, listening, is that, of course, there is no real kink in, in the curve, right? It's a sort of smooth function and a continuous function. The kink emerges based on the scale at which you look at it. So if you take a really long period scale, so the, the sort of geologist, the earth scientist scale, you know, the kink really starts to emerge probably somewhere in your time frame between um, August and, and October when there's enough photosynthesis going on that the photosynthetic process uh, starts to uh, geoengineer the earth, right, and change the atmospheric um composition because you know the co2 is being sucked in by these these plants and they're putting out um lots of oxygen and they're, they're, so the, the thing starts to look very different from a uh you know an earth scientist perspective the, the the thing with the exponential age is that what really matters to us uh as as humans is our lifespans and so what we actually notice in the kink in the curve over that period of time is that the growing complexity and this this rate of change is is manifestly visible um, in our in our lives. So people have complained about uh, the you know the pace of technological change for uh, you know a quite a long time. And there's a lot written about you know New York elevators giving people uh, sort of the, the, the heebie-jeebies in the 1920s uh, and cars going too fast in you know pre World War One era. Uh, but the distinction right now is that that the pace with which these changes take place is, is really, really compressed. And it's measured in, uh, not in across lifetimes, but it's actually measured uh, within decades or within part, parts of decades. If you think about the organizational principles of the world in, um, in the early 1940s, uh, you would have uh, cars, electricity, radio, um, commuting, vacations in the richer parts of the world. It wasn't that different 40, 45, 50 years ago, even 60 years ago. Um, there may have been a little bit more, more of it. The way industries were organized though was, was pretty similar. And, and now we're at this point where the pace of change is so um, dramatic and measure, you know, we, we can measure it and see it. And it's, it's across many, many industries and technologies. Uh, it really does feel different. And just in the course of writing the book, TikTok as a platform product, whatever it is, went from being completely irrelevant to actually after I finished the book, the most downloaded application in history. Uh, and that is the one example of, of the pace of, of change. And it, you know, it is in that sense um, unprecedented, but you know, one can argue that today is the slowest paced day we'll ever live in our lives from on that basis. So uh, here's a specific, um, you know, application uh, for that. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, I guess one, one simplistic way you could summarize part of your argument is that society moves faster today than, than it ever has, um, which is, mm -hmm. which is essentially what you're saying. And so one societal societal process that is notoriously slow would be democracy. And we see mm -hmm. that today countries which, you know, don't take the time to go through the entire democratic process have a certain kind of edge over those countries that do. And so uh, uh, I'm wondering how you think 
our relationship to democracy and democratic processes as a society is going to change uh, as society begins to move, you know, increasingly uh, more quickly. Yeah, I, and I should just clarify. I mean, when I I see the um, ele- disparate elements within society moving more quickly rather than society as a, as a whole. I mean, I think there are certain elements like particular industries based on particular technologies uh, that are moving very fast, but that the large part of the argument is that many of the other institutional um, uh, uh, institutional frames that exist don't move as 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 quickly. Uh, and the the challenge that you have in any um, consensus based decision making process is that it's not as quick as uh, dictatorial uh, decision making. So you could argue that um, there are times when it's it's easier to make a top down um, uh, edict and say this is where we're going, this is how we need to move, um, and it will uh, it will it will happen. And I think that when people look at um, you know the the balance between how China is starting to uh, reshape its economy uh, and it's very very directed and they're they're talking at the very very highest levels about strategic technologies of the future like uh, cleaner quantum computing and nuclear fusion and and so on uh, and they have this ability at which they've proven through um, high speed rail and and high voltage direct current. Uh, power infrastructure to be able to also deliver on big projects. And we can look at that and we can be tempted and say, yeah, the democratic process doesn't allow us to, to do that. But I, I think it's more it's more complex than that for, for a couple of reasons. So for one reason is that within, within China, while there are these centralized edicts, decision-making below that tends to be a little bit more decentralized, um, whether it's done in a region, province, town, city, uh, or company basis, and can it often be a little bit chaotic? So underlying the edict is, you know, is not is not perfect control. Uh, it's not a you know panopticon that that determines every resource. Um, and I think that from my experience of talking to to sort of people involved um, in the country, uh, they do understand that one can't, um, you know, Soviet Union style uh, command the production of exactly the right number of left. Uh, Wellington boots, um, but also if you if you the second corollary I would make is that um, there are real benefits in the nature of a decentralized economy and some kind of consensus uh, decision making because um, part of the purpose of an economy is is price discovery and information tran- transmission. You know I think this is one of the strengths of of Hayek's Friedrich Hayek's arguments. So. The, the value of the decentralized signal that emerges from entrepreneurs trying new things and failing or succeeding um, is something that is currently uncomputable. So you can't, it doesn't matter if you have all the data, you still can't figure out that people are going to prefer TikTok over Instagram TV. Um, uh, and that's, that's very, very important. I think the second thing that's important is that, um, you know, you, you, can, uh, you can be agile at scale if you have subsidiarity and um, distributed decision-making. And I, you know, I make the case in the book that cities need more uh, power, but sort of democratic and economic power in order to tackle many of the incipient issues that they are actually best placed to make uh, rather than national governments. Now, I, I have a personal experience of seeing something big and massive be agile and grow 
uh, uh, successfully. I don't put this example um, in the book, but you've, you've made me think about it, which is that I spent a couple of years as a senior advisor to um, the, the sort of group CEO for technology at Accenture. So Accenture is about a 500,000 person consulting company. Um, uh, Paul, my, my, my boss, had um, two, 300,000 people working for him. Accenture should not be able to find its way into new markets. It is just too big. It is like half a million people. But the way Accenture does this is it's incredibly decentralized and fragmented and democratized. So it is much more, not a single super tanker, it is a flotilla of individual ships that kind of vector into a direction that is kind of collectively arrived at and communicated from the, from the, the top. And actually, I mean, I, I sort of think about that now in the context of your question and say, well, it may look like these sort of top-down systems are going to get step ahead, but, but I don't think they are as top-down as people think. And nor do I necessarily think it's impossible for more consensus-driven, more distributed and decentralized systems, for example, kind of a free market-based system with democratic politics, are necessarily forced to not to be able to engage and lean into the future, um, in, you know, in, in important ways. Yeah. So, okay. So that, so that makes sense that basically by having a kind of hierarchically arranged process, you can be robust mm -hmm. to uh, a lot of the things. And so it doesn't, uh, you know, if, if, if you compare democratic versus less than democratic processes, it's all about what's building up on underneath, not necessarily, uh, uh, how the top node is 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 making its uh, decisions as long as it is influenced by them. Yeah, but there's also institutional robustness, which eliminates risk, right? So robust institutions mean that I can trust you more, and that means that I can deploy capital and my effort and my labor into these into whatever solution we are trying to build together. Um, wh whereas in a in a less democratic place, that those institutions are not as uh, robust. Um, I also know there's also the discovery of the unknowable because there are things that no central planner can know up front, especially with the sort of chaotic interplay of very fast changing technologies. Consumers who blow left and right in, in their masses in different ways and these sort of um, man-made threats like climate change, right? That creates a lot of uh, the unknown um, for, for any planner. So you need an emergent process to, to, to generate potential solutions, right, for each of these threats. And so, but, but you know, I do hear what you're saying, Cody, about, um, ab about this idea of the top down. And it does at times look like sometimes it would be easier if someone could just say, no more coal power plants, right? <laughs> we're not, we're not, we're not going to do it. And that is an edict backed by the force of the state. Um, uh, but I'm not necessarily sure that it always works out that way. So you're yeah, talking a little bit about risk. And one of the great mm. observations that you you make in the book is that the cost of conflict has dropped dramatically. Uh, so it used to be, mm -hmm. you know, you have to fund a war and there's all this stuff that you have to, you know, have for that, which is, you know, materiel, uh, like they right. cost a lot. But now you can fund a cyber attack. You know, for example, a bunch of bots spreading misinformation on Twitter, which is a lot more cost effective and can have significant, significant consequences on uh, whoever your adversary is. So I'm curious uh, what, 
what in your view do we do we do to protect against this? Uh, what 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 does the this sort of current look like as as we you know wade further into this this kind of era of society? Yeah, I mean it's uh, the, the technologies are handing power to uh, more disenfranchised and peripheral actors as well as. Uh, very very powerful ones, and you know there are there are there are three aspects, right? There's the the idea of disinformation campaigns and botnets. There's cyber attacks, and there've been a number that we've been have been sort of unveiled uh, since I put the book to bed. Um, and of course, there's there's also drone warfare, all of which um, drops the uh, you know drops the the, the price. Um, and as it gets cheaper, it gets more desirable, uh, and that's the that's the ultimate challenge. And The way the way to uh, address this is, um, you know, and I go through a few of the solutions in in the book, is a little bit multi-factor, and it always um, ends up be, uh, being a bit multi-factor. You know, the first thing you have to do is you have to improve your defenses, and you have to be able to assess what your um, what's known as your attack surface looks like, and figure out how to um, you know shore it shore it up. So that may be to look at things like um you know citizens and how well informed they are how well they understand the process of of media and media manipulation and there are some countries like taiwan and finland that do this better than than others um we all uh, there are also other cohorts i don't mention this in the book that seem to do this better than others but you know younger people seem to be better at tackling weird stupid fake news and much much older people um and there's sort of data coming out of the us that that um demonstrates that and um, i think the second thing that's really uh becomes important is um the establishment of new norms on um communication and uh escalation so that people do know you know what is the putative um you know article 5 trigger threshold that's the 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 article in the nato treaty that that brings everyone else to your aid if you've been attacked uh and it's typically had to be a kind of kinetic war uh but now in the last year or two uh you know uh, jens stoltenberg from nato has said well cyber threats could potentially trigger um article five uh so then you're, you're starting to establish like a key um mode of um of escalation and communication you know the mythical red phone that uh kennedy and khrushchev installed after the uh the cuban missile crisis and i think that that is um very very important you know people need to know what this ends up ends up looking like but there's also the issue of where these battles actually take place and who who is party to them so when i was you know marching soldiers across your border, uh, you know, it's territorial sovereignty. It's very, very clear who owns that, you know, that attack surface and who owns the soldiers. Today, the attacks happen on these, these third-party platforms that have in some sense created new, um, new publics, but they're private publics, right? The land is not the land. The land is comment threads on Facebook that are, that, that, that at, at the same time as they look like they're the public space, they're not the public space. Um, or the attacks are coming through the Wi-Fi enabled light bulbs that are being produced without any sense of their reliability, their robustness or their security. Uh, and so I think that there are obligations that can be put on uh, industry to think about their 
role in it. And they're rather different, right? But uh, to in you know, sector to sector, but already governments and nation states rely very, very heavily on these private actors to stop these um, these cyber threats, right? You rely on Microsoft or Google or Cloudflare uh, to stop a botnet or a worm that is spreading across the internet. Um, and how we formalize that and formalize their social obligations, um, I think is a really important question. So earlier we were talking about your educational opportunities uh, when mm-hmm. you were you know, sort of getting started in university and that sort of stuff. I'm curious, what do you think, what would you like to see educational institutions doing now to prepare students who are going to go on to participate in the exponential age? What, what do you think our educational institutions need to be doing, uh, maybe on top of what they already are doing? Well, I, I would start by saying I think that um, yeah, watching my son and my daughters go through uh, the, the system, I think things have really uh, largely improved uh, since since I was a student. I mean, you know, pedagogy has got better, and uh, as we would expect it to, you know, there are many more iterations, and there's a whole body of knowledge around it. So we start from a, uh, I think, a roughly speaking, a position um, that is that is quite quite healthy. Um, there are a couple of issues. Yeah. So one issue is that, um, especially in the UK, syllabuses appear to be a little bit political. So, for example, um, my kids were taught uh, things like, oh, we need to stop using fossil fuels because we might run out, not we need to stop using fossil fuels because we will de- destroy the planet's ability to carry and bear life. Um, uh, they were taught about the advantages of climate change, which is that Kent, which is a kind of southeastern part of England, would be able to improve its wine industry. Um, And so there are also desperate needs to upgrade uh, syllabuses and upgrade syllabuses with the kind of framing I think that I have in in the book, uh, which I think talks about what what the, the systems of this new world might look like. So let's assume that you can update the syllabuses. And I say in the UK, it's a little bit political about what goes in and and what comes out. Um, The other thing I think that's really uh, important is to to recognize that we have got tools that we can use to help um, educate people, whether it is, you know, um, YouTube videos where many of us learn lots of different skills or things like TikTok, which um, has got great number of educators uh, on it. And I think if you look at um, our ability to change behaviors and enable people to understand more about the world, um, we've got the tools and the platforms that allow them to do it, maybe inside and outside of the, the formal academy. But it's really important, I think, that alongside, um, sorry, it's really important to understand that one of the things I think people have learned is the the skill of metacognition, right? The ability to learn about learning, that you can rely on a 10 or 11 year old to learn how to make a particular cupcake or how to improve a, 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 a goal kick technique through these channels. But do they understand that that's what they're doing? And are they uh, given the capabilities of critical thinking to think critically about particular questions. That's all the newfangled stuff, right? Which I think is really important, but the basic building blocks of literacy and numeracy, uh, uh, which also include you know, history, and they also include statistics and not just Victorian algebra, I think become critical. So I think the demands 
are broader uh, for, for the educator than they have been, but the tools exist. And I think that there are positive signals that people can, um, the, the, the student can take them up, can adapt to them. And, and I just, you know, anecdotally, the quality of uh, resumes or CVs that I see for people applying to work at um, Exponential View from these 23 and 24 year olds just blow me away. I mean, I'm so glad I'm not 23 trying to get a job because I would be on the breadline. I mean, you guys are so much smarter, more driven, uh, more multidisciplinary than, than we ever were. Yeah, it's 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 crazy, and it feels like it. it every two years, it gets dramatically uh, more. Uh, I feel like you know, every you know, couple of years, I've been out of college for what five years or something like that. Every time right. I you sort of take a pulse, like, yeah, what are what are people in their final year of uh, university up to these days? Like, geez, man, it's 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 yeah. insane. Uh, it's so insane. The 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 thing that I I want to come back to uh, touched on our you know. Uh, what we're talking about with newsletters and, and, and that sort of stuff and also inequality and all that sort of stuff is one of the topics you, you touch on and you deal with is, is the gig economy and how that's changing mm-hmm. the nature of work. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, uh, what can you say a little bit about about the, the arguments that you make there and how you think employ, uh, employment is going to involve, uh, evolve post-pandemic uh, and, and, and what, what, what that's going to uh, mean uh, for, for us going forward? Yeah, well, I'm going to start with an enormous caveat, which is that labor markets are incredibly complicated, as I learned over the years that I did my research. And there are so many factors that are pushing and and, and pulling uh, people in in different directions. Uh, And so as we headed into the pandemic, uh, there was record levels of employment in most rich countries and and very, very low levels of of unemployment. Um, And then when we went through the pandemic, Lots of people lost their jobs, uh, but the pe- people who were in companies that had lots of robots uh, did not lose their job, right? The more automated companies uh, were actually better positioned to adapt and grow in the pandemic, whether it was you know, Amazon or a, a, a Cardo, which is a grocery retailer in the UK, or JD.com in China, or Netflix. These companies all, all grew despite their heavy investment in um, automation and, and AI. Uh, and that shows that there's a sort of quite a complex process going on, and I, I talk about it um, in in the book. And um, but the, the other dynamic then is this idea of the, you know, the gig economy and the the fact that, um, you know, companies may choose to access their labour resources um, on the basis of a you know tasks at a, at a time. And even before Uber came along, this idea of zero hours contracts in in the United Kingdom. Um, uh, was was a sort of precursor to what we think of as as the gig economy. Um, now, one of the major dynamics there is actually about the relative bargaining power between labour and the uh, the company and the employer, uh, and that relates to their ability to organise. It relates to the number of them, um, and uh, you know a host of other factors like kind of policy and and regulation. In, in Western markets, um, it's quite clear that you know gig working is going to emerge stay uh, and 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 be a legitimate form of work um and so what needs to uh shift is the status the legal status the rights that the gig worker has because traditionally they've had fewer rights than someone who's fully employed and so if this is going to uh, work remain as a as a pattern of of employment and and earning for people 
uh, we need to establish sort of cu- certain critical rights around, you know, welfare and holiday pay and sick pay and the ability for gig workers to organize because, you know, when laborers, labor can organize it, that's how it most improves the quality of life for the worker from the basics of their income, but to all the other ancillary benefits. So that's really important. But but the other thing I would say is that in other markets, right, we often forget that you know, labor markets are complicated. And if you go to other markets where there's perhaps a more informal employment sector, think of Nigeria or India, where fewer workers are on these kind of Western um, style employment contracts with all the benefits. Many are highly, highly informal, uh, informally employed and get their work uh, in these informal mechanisms. Often with all sorts of sort of corruption and prejudice and bias they have to contend with, gig platforms might actually provide more formality. And with that more formality, more certainty, more protections, and actually a better worker experience. So the sort of gig working experience in the exponential age is going to play out differently in different countries based on those sort of underlying characteristics. Um, but it's it's clear that it it'll it's here to to stay, and we have to not so much make peace with it, but take advantage of it because it creates a new style of employment that might we can make sure works. Uh, for workers, uh, you know, as well as for the companies and the customers who use it. Love it. Uh, The book is The Exponential Age in North America, uh, Exponential in UK and and elsewhere. Uh, Azeem, thanks for taking the time to talk today. Oh, Cody, I really appreciated it. Thank you. That was my conversation with Azeem Azar. If you want to connect further with him, definitely go check out his book, Exponential Age or Exponential, depending on where you live, and also his newsletter slash podcast, also of a similar name. If you want to connect further with me, definitely subscribe to this podcast. You can also follow my writing at my Substack newsletter, codycommerce.substack.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And I'll be back here next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Cognitive Revolution.